but I don't I really don't have any regrets I really don't I've I've lived exactly how I've wanted to I've tried my hardest every single time I didn't win the matches that maybe I should have always won or but I really gave it my all so that for me is enough Hello everybody, welcome back to The Body Serve. I'm Jonathan. And I'm James. This is a, a special presentation again. It seems as though The Body Serve has segued semi-permanently into special presentations. <laughs> <laughs> We're a historical podcast now because there is basically no present. And so unless something stunning happens, something or a series of events that happen that allow us to form a full episode out of it. We're just going to keep on doing a bit of research and presenting these types of episodes. Right. On our last episode, we looked into the career and life of Zena Garrison. We had a wonderful time doing that. That was a really rewarding experience, and I hope that it came through in the recording of that episode. And this is just something that we enjoy. We want to know more about the history of the sport that we love and that we've invested a lot of time into. And I hope that it helps us understand contemporary tennis a little bit better. The more we we do research, say, for example, we look into Zena's career, then we kind of get access to other parts of tennis history. So it's a process that, that opens up so much more tennis history and creates so much more content. Mm -hmm. Basically, I love learning. And if I could go to school every year for the rest of my life and get paid for it, I would do that. That sounds dire. <laughs> yes. But you do you. Today we wanted to do smaller portraits of a number of what we call hidden figures, but not necessarily hidden, but lesser known tennis players in the past. On our last episode to talk about Xena, we felt we had to talk a little bit about Aura Washington. And so she'll be presented in this episode. We're also going to talk about Rhea Morrison. We're going to talk about Richard Russell, who is a former Jamaican tennis professional. And we're going to end with a look at the Amitraj family. So you may know one or two of them, but there are at least four who are involved or have been involved in tennis. If you're from India, this is not hidden at all. Vijay Amitraj especially is one of the biggest sporting figures in Indian history, so forgive us for lumping him into the hidden category. But for a lot of us in the West, we may not know quite as much about the Amritraj family, the dynasty, if you will. So let's get this started with Aura Washington. We talked about her briefly in our Zena Garrison episode as the the pre-Althea, the proto-Althea Gibson, and a, an athlete who has incredible achievements in the early 20th century, but whom I had never heard of before we started researching Xena, and someone you almost never hear talked about in the kind of continuum of the African-American tennis experience. I felt almost ashamed that I hadn't heard of Aura Washington, but it, it seems that she has been unjustly overlooked for a lot of sporting history. There's a sense that for mainstream tennis historians that black tennis history as far as the first major person to come out of the ATA was Althea Gibson. 
and that you don't really have anybody that predates her, but that's just not the case. That's that's what we learned. Not only is there somebody before Althea Gibson, but somebody monumental before Althea Gibson. And there are actually many players, many stars on a smaller scale who came out of the ATA, and there was a counterpart system on the West Coast as well. And also a lot of people who were invested in the development of young black tennis players. That the ATA existed and flourished and still exists today is kind of remarkable. Born out of necessity, the ATA existed parallel to the US LTA because black tennis players were not allowed to play in the US LTA at the time. There was segregation until 1948. And so in a lot of the stories we're going to talk about today, one of the themes is exclusion. And with exclusion, you see these parallel systems being built from the ground up alongside the the establishment organizations like the US LTA. So what is the ATA, the American Tennis Association? At the end of the 1800s into the early 20th century, tennis became popular with the burgeoning black middle class in the United States. Interestingly, one of the reasons why it developed was with these burgeoning middle classes, playing tennis was aspirational and a signifier of status. And so in order to, to bolster their place in society, they felt that they needed to, to play tennis as well. Through historically black colleges and universities, or HBCUs, like Howard University in Washington, D.C., the Tuskegee Institute, tennis becomes popular among university students. You see African-American tennis clubs pop up, really focused in the mid-Atlantic region in Washington, Baltimore, Philadelphia, kind of what you think of the old money East Coast metropolitan areas. And these African-American tennis clubs needed to exist because African-Americans were explicitly excluded from the white establishment clubs. So the American Tennis Association is formed in 1916 by this group of black businessmen, doctors, professors, with the goal of providing an infrastructure that did not yet exist for black tennis tournaments and a way to promote tennis within black communities across the United States. So the ATA sets up a separate tournament circuit, which is hosted through African-American tennis clubs and partnerships with HBCUs. And like you said, it still exists today. It is currently the oldest African-American sporting organization in the United States. And today it focuses on developing junior players. And it is actually open to kids of all backgrounds, but with a focus on African-American junior players. So Ora Washington comes up through this system. She's born in Virginia in 1899. She's part of this great migration of Southern African-Americans who came up north, moved to Philadelphia in the 1910s to live with her aunt. The reason for that migration is that post-emancipation, the South, it was always unfriendly to African-Americans, to Blacks, but it it became even more so around that time. When Reconstruction failed, Jim Crow laws were instituted, it became dangerous, inhospitable, and millions, up to six million black people from the South moved North throughout the end of the 19th century and early 20th century. Ora Washington was one of those people. By the time she picks up tennis in 1924, she's already 24, 25 years old. And she picks it up at the YWCA at this pretty advanced age for an athlete. 
but within a year, she's winning big titles. She wins the first of 12 consecutive national doubles titles in the ATA. This is 1925. In 1929, five years into her tennis career, she wins her first ATA national singles title and goes on to win seven straight. In 1936, she loses to her rival and doubles partner Lulu Ballard while she was suffering sunstroke, and she regains her title the following year in Springfield, Massachusetts. All told, on the ATA circuit, she won eight national singles titles, 12 national doubles titles, and three mixed. This type of dominance is basically unheard of. But she's not making money. She's winning all these titles, but she's not making money. She has to sustain herself by doing housework. Throughout her life, even during her athletic career, she supplemented her income by working as a cleaner in the homes of wealthy white folks. After this incredible run of success in the American Tennis Association, she is recognized as one of the great women athletes around. Like, she, she has some measure of fame, even outside of the black community. She wanted to prove herself as a great champion against the greatest white champion of her day, Helen Wills Moody. Moody never accepted this challenge. Washington was not able to face any white player in any USTA events or Grand Slam events. So she never actually got a chance to see how she stacked up against the great Moody, Helen Jacobs, uh, Suzanne Langlois, you know, all these superstars of that day. Interestingly, Don Budge did play against the best African-American male player of his day. So in 1940, this is a few years removed from Don Budge's Grand Slam. He is the world's best player. He plays this exhibition match at the Cosmopolitan Tennis Club in Harlem, New York. 2,000 spectators. It was this huge media event. And he plays Jimmy McDaniel, who was the best black male player alive at that time. Budge won easily, but he told the press afterward that McDaniel would probably rank among the top 10 or so of the best white male tennis players in the world, and that with some practice and with getting used to playing that circuit, he could probably beat all of them. I wonder what the motivation for Helen Wills Moody would have been to play or Washington at that time. Because money wouldn't have been a motivating factor because she couldn't. By the time Don Budge would have played that match... He had already gone pro. Exactly. Yeah. So he could be enticed by sums of money to do it. Aura and Helen Wills Moody, they were both amateurs at that time. And so the prospect of setting up this exhibition for money just wasn't on. The real issue there was to, to get these two women to play each other outside of let's just play each other for fun and see what happens was to have some kind of integration or acknowledgement of the ATA by the USLTA. Right. In saying all that, I'm just trying to interrogate this whole bit of, well, Helen Wills Moody said, no, I didn't want to do it. I just feel like there was a lot more to consider. Right. And we don't know the circumstances around that. Like, why did she say no? Was there an opportunity to play? Were any sponsors interested? And we know that even among amateurs, there were occasionally these opportunities for like under the table money making, which happened more so on the men's side. But I want to know more about that because clearly (laughs) Helen Wills Moody would have had a lot to lose by playing Aura Washington, Mm -hmm. even if she won. For her, what was the cost benefit going on? This This is also in the context of an extremely racist and exclusionary society in 1930s United States. So this is not an excuse for anyone. 
you have to keep in mind as well that during this time, starting with Jack Johnson in the early 1900s and Jesse Owens at the, the Berlin Games in 36, there is this building history of sport being used to make great proclamations for the worth of the black or the white race with respect to each other. Hitler wanted Owens beaten at the 36 games because he could not stomach a black man winning in Nazi Germany, Mm -hmm. right? On the other hand, the United States has used the illusion of civil equality to act as a propaganda tool internationally, Yes, right? The Soviet Union has done the same thing to embarrass the United States as this place of inequality. Owens was a pawn on both sides of the pond. Yeah. And so there's a lot at stake, too, in this kind of match. Helen Wills Moody making a statement for the supremacy of white people, and similarly, Ora Washington being an inspiration and a symbol of black achievement and self-worth in that type of scenario. Right. So the two of them playing would not have been, in any circumstance, simply about the tennis match. And so we'll never know. We'll never know how Ora Washington would have competed against the best tennis players of her day if she was the best tennis player of her day. We have no idea. In 1931, though, she's in the midst of this dominance of tennis, which has not stopped, and she decides to start playing basketball. First, she plays for the Germantown Hornets, which is centered at the Germantown YWCA in Philadelphia. She becomes the center for the Philadelphia Tribune, which is sponsored by this major African-American newspaper, They're called the Tribune Girls or the News Girls. And according to Arthur Ashe, the Tribune was Black America's first premier female sports team. Throughout the 1930s, this team loses only six games. Ora Washington is the center, frequently the highest scorer. She manages to dominate two sports literally at the same time. While still being a maid to make money on the side. Right. I learned something interesting about basketball at the time. In the 1930s, in that era, women's basketball played a a really different setup. There were six players, but they had three players who played only on offense when the team had possession of the ball, and three different players would play on defense. And the idea was that women were frail. They wanted to minimize strain, that women didn't have a lot of stamina to last on both offense and defense throughout an entire game. And the Tribune played this style, and they also played what we know of now as the modern style, the same players playing both offense and defense. So they switched it up. The Tribune, this is this is great. So they were known in their day for going hard. They were probably, by the standards of that day, playing a little dirty, playing a little bit rough, but this was their reputation. And as the center, or Washington, you know, that's kind of her job. The enforcer. Right. Ora Washington's career takes place at a very unique time in American cultural history where professional sport or just organized sport is is starting to really take off in a public way. And for women, it wasn't just about you playing the game. It was about how you presented yourself. You could only do so much. You could only exert yourself so much. You still had to preserve your femininity. You still had to make yourself palatable to men. Women's sport very much existed tenfold under the male gaze back then. Right. There were some weird Victorian ideas and almost like ideas that spring from psychoanalysis that (laughs) said that women 
if they exerted themselves too much in sport, it could make them sexually insatiable or even damage their reproductive organs. So there was this consideration like in basketball playing, you know, only three players at a time. And this reminded me of a league of their own. There was such a focus on how the female baseball players looked and presented themselves. They went to finishing school, all that. Washington was not really the the paragon. She wore shorts. She was, you know, not many tennis players wore shorts at that time. She was rough. She was physical and not super interested in living that feminine ideal. Her contemporaries were worried that her dominance in tennis would discourage more people from playing tennis and that her opponents were too scared to come on court with her. And so they were beaten before they took the court. We've heard this with so many dominant athletes. As we wrap this up, one of the things that stuck out to me toward the end of Ora Washington's tennis career was the fact that her last major tennis title came at the 1948 ATA Championships, where in mixed doubles, she defeated Althea Gibson, which you can't really write a better passing of the torch figurative scenario than that, really. Literally her last title handing over to the start of Althea's run and Aura being the precursor, the one who paved the way for Althea to then still struggle mightily, but make more progress. Right. And of course, neither of them could have known that at the time. We have to credit the historian Pamela Grundy, who has done a ton of work in digging into Aura Washington's life and career. She's responsible for bringing a lot of this stuff to light. She's lobbied for her induction into certain halls of fame and all that. So at this point, Washington is a member of the Women's Basketball Hall of Fame, the Naismith Basketball Hall of Fame in 2018, but is not in the International Tennis Hall of Fame in Newport. At the end of her life, Or Washington lived a fairly obscure life, so much so that when she was inducted into the Black Athletes Hall of Fame in 1975, the New York Times reported that the seat reserved for her on the days the night of the induction ceremonies was empty, and Miss Washington's whereabouts remain a mystery. This was after she had already died. This was four years after her death, and this Hall of Fame and the New York Times didn't know that. Another parallel between Or Washington and Althea Gibson is that they both played multiple sports at a high level. Or playing tennis and basketball, and Althea playing tennis. And then when she was unable to make enough money to sustain a living in tennis, she segued into all kinds of other things, including professional golf. She tried her hand at singing, being a professional singer. And so one of the overarching narratives of being a black woman athlete in the early to mid 20th century in America is that unless you had somebody backing you financially, which these two women didn't, in order to make your own way, you had to improvise. The next player that we want to talk about is Richard Russell from Jamaica. And in talking about him, a similar theme comes up with Ora Washington in that you think of the first African-American woman's tennis player and you think of Althea Gibson, you think of perhaps for a lot of folks today, the most prominent Jamaican tennis player, and you think Dustin Brown, when in fact, there's somebody else to look at. And so with Jamaican tennis, the first real Jamaican prominent tennis player was Richard Russell. And I first came to know of him because when I was in high school in Jamaica, his son was a prominent junior at the time. He has three sons. Two of them played professional tennis, not nearly on the scale that he did, But when I was in high school, his son, Ryan Russell, was on the junior circuit. 
he made the semifinals of Junior Wimbledon in doubles. But his father first struck out on the international tennis circuit in the mid-1960s. In fact, Richard Russell was the only Jamaican to qualify for and win matches at all Grand Slam championships. He never made it past the second round. He owned a 14-28 and 28 win-loss record on the ATP Tour. Keep in mind that that accounts for his matches in the Open Era. So he had more success between 1966 and 1968, but that's not really accounted for in his official statistics on the ATP Tour. Among the players that Richard Russell beat in his career, he scored a win over Sherwood Stewart in 1971 at a tournament in North Carolina. If you recall, Sherwood Stewart comes up in our previous episode on Zena Garrison, where he partnered Zena to mix doubles titles at the 1987 Australian Open and the 1988 Wimbledon. He also made further slam finals with Zena as well as Laura McNeil during that time. If you do any reading on Richard Russell, one of the things that you'll come across is that he beat Arthur Ashe. Folks will just, you know, throw that out there. But what really happened was in 1966, alongside Lance Lumsden playing in Davis Cup for the Caribbean Commonwealth, that pair beat Arthur Ashe and the United States team in a doubles rubber. Russell also played the likes of Pancho Gonzalez. There are all these tournaments that happen in Jamaica during that time. And you have the likes of Pancho Gonzalez playing in Jamaica and beating Richard Russell. Russell is also credited as holding the record of winning a Grand Slam match 6-love, 6-love, 6-love at the Australian Open in 1966 over Richie Chopra. In telling the story of Richard Russell, you get to learn that, that tennis does have a bit of a history in Jamaica as well. And in 1975, Russell participated in the first ever Nations Cup which would go on to be known as the World Team Cup from 1978 to 2012. It was held that first time in Jamaica, and then subsequently from 78 to 2012, it was held in Dusseldorf, Germany. Arthur Ashe played in that tournament and went on to win the title alongside Roscoe Tanner. From Russell qualifying for Wimbledon and playing all these Grand Slams in the mid-1960s, right up until 1975 with the Nations Cup, you have this decade where tennis is taking root and really starting to thrive in Jamaica. And I don't know what the answer is, but it seemed to to fall away after that. As to how Richard Russell got into tennis, it was purely happenstance. He tells a story that he was originally a cricketer at Kingston College in, in Jamaica, which was a high school. I played against Kingston College many times in cricket. Richard Russell said that he played at all levels of cricket in high school. He played for the under 14 team, he played for the Colts team, which was the under-16 team. Then he also played the Sunlight Cup, which was the 18 and under. And for high school cricketers in Jamaica, you can pretty much play all three at the same time if you're good enough and age-eligible. So, for example, if you're 13 years old and you're good enough, you can play at the Colts level, you can play at the Sunlight Cup level, which is what Richard Russell did. He was good enough as a cricketer that he was the youngest high school cricketer at the time to play Sunlight Cup cricket, which was the 18 and under team. And while that was happening, he was training on the field after school and the tennis coach comes over and according to him, just plucks three or four guys at random or, you know, finding who would be willing to help him out because he needed to field a tennis team to compete at some high school tournament in two weeks. And so Richard Russell is picked to be one of these guys, learns the game, and within a year, he's a national champion. And at that time, his father kind of 
steers him in the direction of becoming a tennis player because he sees that as an easier route to becoming a professional athlete. Which was interesting for me because at that time, West Indies cricket was huge. And the prospect of becoming a professional cricket player, I imagine, would have been on the forefront of any young athlete's mind in Jamaica, much more so than becoming a tennis player. Right. A West Indies cricket would have been very competitive to break into, but tennis at that time, pre-open era, was not a huge money-making sport. And there weren't really any black male superstars to point to to say, well, I'm going to be like that guy and break through. True, but at the same time, there really wasn't any money to be made from playing professional cricket at the time. There was no T20 cricket, there was no one-day cricket. The story of international cricket at that time was test match cricket and of playing for country and national pride. So I don't think anybody really conceived of playing for the West Indies as a means of getting rich. But I do think that perhaps Richard Russell's father saw tennis as perhaps a more lucrative option if Richard were good enough. According to Richard Russell, he said, My father apparently read in those days that all the top Australian players learned to play against the garage wall at their house. So my father had me seven days a week, half an hour against the wall, and then I became the youngest national champion of Jamaica by 16. And that started the whole thing. My father picked up the phone, called Australia, asked about the great Harry Hopman. He didn't know him at all. And he got a hold of him and said, My son has just become the youngest national champion of Jamaica and I don't know what to do with him. And Harry Hopman said, Put him on a plane and send him to me. And off I went. <laughs> that was the start of my whole development, spending a year with Harry Hopman in Australia. And those are quotes given to blacktennispros.com. I mentioned Lance Lumsden before as Richard Russell's partner at the 1966 Davis Cup. Interestingly, Lance Lumsden also hailed from Kingston College. They went to the same high school. Lumsden was a few years older than Russell, and he too made his way onto the Grand Slam tennis circuit. Lance Lumsden's claim to fame as a tennis player is that at the very first professional Grand Slam in the Open era, at the French Open in 1968, Lance Lumsden draws Rod Laver in the first round, the number one seed, and loses to him in straight sets. This is a very interesting time for a lot of reasons. Richard Russell was 17 when Jamaica declared independence in 1962, He's playing in the Caribbean and the United States. The U.S. is near exploding with civil unrest, with the civil rights movement, anti-war movement. He becomes good friends with Arthur Ashe, who is really in the, the whole stew of all of this. It makes sense that Richard Russell and Arthur Ashe would become friends. I imagine for a black tennis player on the tennis circuit in the mid-1960s, for those reasons that you just stated, would be a very lonely place for a black man. It's the story of black players in tennis is often framed around this idea of isolation in a lily white sport of this double oppression where not only are you oppressed in regular society but you also are ostracized within the tennis community as well. And so they develop this friendship under these circumstances. But what's interesting to me is that Richard Russell's experience would have been a little bit different because he was playing tennis in the Caribbean where its majority black population. His initiation into tennis isn't the same as what Arthur Ashe's was. And when he goes to play tennis in the United States, 
he's treated a little bit differently or better because he is Jamaican and not African-American. And keep in mind too that Richard Russell is playing very sporadically in the United States. So his having to deal with the racial unrest in America is something that he can dip in and out of. He's going home, back home to Jamaica, where he has none of those things to deal with, whereas this is real life all the time for Arthur Ashe. Right. He tells a story that I played in Pensacola, Florida once. I didn't know that they had an emergency board meeting to decide whether for me to be able to play or not to play. They decided that I'm not an American, I'm Jamaican, and these are the grounds on which they allowed me to play. And he goes on to say that it would have been a totally different scenario for Arthur Ashe. This is not to say that Richard Russell was treated well, (laughs) Mm. but there were different considerations for him because he was Jamaican. But wow. Imagine the whole swirling mess of racism and classism that exists in that story. That because he was a black person, but not of African-American descent, he was given special dispensation to play in this tournament that would normally discriminate against someone who looks like him. Which gives you insight into how fallacious the idea of race is. That racism is extremely real, but race is a concept. We may look back on Richard Russell's career and and think, or be tempted to think that, well, wow, this guy didn't really do that much. But for him, and if you listen to him talk about it now, it's a source of great pride that a Jamaican in 1966 could have traveled to England, qualified, and then played at Wimbledon. And then to have his son play at Wimbledon as well, being two points away from making the junior Wimbledon doubles final. These are the legacies that tennis federations can build off of. These firsts, they don't always happen to be the ones who achieve the most, but they are the ones who made those initial forays to then make things possible for other people. Unfortunately, the development of tennis in Jamaica has stalled significantly since then. Richard Russell is currently one of the big players still involved in tennis in Jamaica. He has his own academy, the RTA, the Russell Tennis Academy, that's run by himself and his sons. And the Jamaican Tennis Federation still relies heavily on Richard Russell. His academy has a contract with the Jamaican Federation to choose Jamaica's Davis Cup players currently. They train at his academy, and then him along with the board choose who are the players that will go on to represent Jamaica in Davis Cup. And it seems in modern tennis, if you're from a smaller country, the only way for the National Federation to really break out and raise a lot of money is if it births a superstar. And it's really difficult to create a superstar without that infrastructure in place, without that money to support that person. So you need like a supreme talent, basically, an accident of nature. The ITF gives money to national federations around the world, but... It's discouraging that a country like Jamaica or Ecuador or, you know, pick any, quote, smaller country in the world, that tennis federation is going to have a really difficult time raising a lot of funds. If it doesn't have a big tournament in its country, if it doesn't host Davis Cup, if it hasn't had a really famous player come out of the country. Right. And one of the ways that Jamaica's tried to improve their standing is to acquire a bigger tournament. I read that they've tried to get an ATP challenger. They've had ITF events. They want to maybe contract two of the ITF events to then maybe get an ATP challenger, attract bigger names to play on the island. Venus and Serena have gone to Jamaica and held clinics, but these are sporadic things that happen. And the consistent, prolonged infusion of money and resources 
into the development of the sport in the in the country is is what's needed. How many high schools in Jamaica have a tennis court? I know mine did, but even so, it was like you're on recess, you have your tennis racket, you go hit the ball around. If you watch tennis on TV, then you know what the rules are, but there was no coach. There was a guy who, who came like a couple days after school each week and worked with a select few, but you'd have to pay for lessons. Like this is not really sustainable in Jamaica. Like I went to a high school where there was more uh, more access and more resources than a lot of other high schools. But even then it was more or less completely inaccessible to me. The ones who took lessons with the guy who came after school, their parents had memberships at the club. Tennis is just not a sport that's accessible to the majority of people in smaller countries. It just isn't. Mm -hmm. Whereas in Jamaica specifically, there's an immense infrastructure in track and field. There isn't so much an immense infrastructure in track and field as there is great results and a storied history in Jamaica. The thing about track and field is that, yes, it's a part of the culture and it's huge, but it also doesn't require much infrastructure for folks to do well. With track and field, you just need a pair of spikes and to be able to run. With tennis, you need courts, you need equipment, you need to break down the stereotype of it being a white sport exclusively, which is something that I'm sure Venus and Serena being such huge global stars now has helped to eradicate. But what it boils down to is that you need resources. You really can't go very far unless you have huge sums of money invested in the country to get as many young kids playing as possible. And to Carl Hale's credit, you may know he is the tournament director of the Rogers Cup in Toronto. He is born in Jamaica, lived there till I believe he was seven, seven, eight, nine years old, and then his family moved to Canada. He spent a lot of time and a lot of resources in recent years putting on clinics and tournaments on the North Coast and raising funds to give back and develop tennis on the island. So we shall see. I also want to give a bit of a brief history lesson about Davis Cup in the Caribbean at the time that Richard Russell would have been playing. I've seen a lot where folks refer to him having represented Jamaica in Davis Cup, when in fact, he would have been representing the Commonwealth Caribbean, which would have encompassed all of the British-speaking Caribbean islands. The reason for that is... At the time, there was a similar tournament that was played called the Brandon Cup. And in the Brandon Cup, the individual islands of the British Caribbean would play against each other. So Jamaica, Trinidad, all those English-speaking countries would play for their individual countries. And then they would come together as a collective to play Davis Cup. Not dissimilar to cricket and how the islands banded together under the banner of West Indies to play internationally. So Richard Russell played Davis Cup for the Commonwealth Caribbean, and it wasn't until 1992 when the Brandon Cup became obsolete because Davis Cup changed its rules to require individual federations to play as their own country in the Davis Cup. So from 1948 until 1992, tennis players from the British Caribbean were able to compete in the Davis Cup for the Commonwealth Caribbean, as well as for their individual countries at the Brandon Cup. When the Davis Cup made that change, they then created the Caribbean slash Central American division within the Davis Cup, which then kind of made the Brandon Trophy obsolete, because it's essentially the same tournament, same setup, same style, 
but on a much smaller scale. One last bit on Richard Russell before we move on to our next player. On that business of his friendship with Arthur Ashe, you'll see pictures of the two of them together on the internet if you search. They hung out together quite a bit. In fact, Richard Russell tells that Arthur Ashe loved Jamaica and actually came to Jamaica many times, and they maintained a friendship over the years. One of the stories that Richard Russell tells about Arthur Ashe is that oftentimes when they were at tournaments together, or even when they weren't, folks would think that he was Arthur Ashe and come up to him all the time and ask him for autographs. And so he said he got so tired of it being approached 50 times in one tournament that sometimes he just signed it Arthur Ashe. (laughs) And while that may have been a funny anecdote for Richard Russell, what it brings to my mind is this theme that comes up every single time we do research on a black tennis player, them being mistaken for another black person, without fail, Mm -hmm. every single time. We've witnessed it in person with Venus and Serena. We've seen the way folks can't tell them apart, be it online or in written form or on television. We saw it with Zena Garrison and Laura McNeil in the 80s, and we're seeing it here again with Arthur Ashe and Richard Russell. And it to me, it would be infuriating. There's literally, at any given time, a handful of Black people at any given tennis tournament, and folks can't tell them apart. Like, it's, it's really not that difficult. I was on the internet the other day, and I came across this meme with Andy Samberg, Michael Sarah, and Jesse Eisenberg. And I just had to laugh because, like, Black people are expected to tell these three guys apart. <laughs> But y'all can't tell Venus and Serena apart? Like, I don't... Make it make sense. Like, this is completely ridiculous. It's not that hard. Who's next? So earlier this year, in January, if you were watching the Auckland tournament, you watched Serena Williams win her first title since 2017, and you may have encountered a new tennis figure that you've never heard of before. I did. Ruya Morrison, who is a legend in New Zealand. She presented the trophy to Serena in that ceremony, and I was compelled to know more about this person, right? It felt like this woman is a legend in New Zealand. I have no idea who she is. All I know is that she beat Margaret Court at the Auckland tournament way back, I think, in 1960. The seeds of this episode started with that moment, because right after that, I went and opened a Google document and put her name down, and said, we're going to do an episode where we talk about lesser-known players in tennis history. And for, like, a few months, we had nobody to add to that until we had to really get to doing some research to create content. But this episode starts with Ruya Morrison. Right. So she is an indigenous Maori woman. She was born in Te Kotu, New Zealand. She came up... You know, tennis was actually very popular amongst Maori communities. She started playing... And she begins to dominate the Maori tennis tournaments. There were, as we saw in the United States, there was a separate structure between Maori tennis tournaments and the white New Zealand Lawn Tennis Association tournament structure. And there wasn't really overlap. So she begins to dominate the Maori community. Then the white tennis players, she wins all those. She goes to Auckland, beats basically every woman who's playing tennis in New Zealand. And it's kind of like, what's next? This is the mid to late 1950s. What is next for a woman tennis player from the South Pacific who is not white? And her community rallies. 
The umpire and educator John YTT starts this fundraising campaign, puts on a concert, and the community raises £2,000 for her to travel to Wimbledon. Which at the time would have been good for multiple trips, which she ended up making four trips total to Wimbledon. The New Zealand Lawn Tennis Association offered this token £25 after the money had already been raised, and the Maori community said, you know what, we're good. Thanks, love, but... We have enough money to send her. You didn't really offer a lot of support before. And Ruya said, I didn't know where Wimbledon was. I didn't want to go. She wanted to stay home. But alas, she went. This is 1957. She plays Wimbledon four times. In that very first appearance in 1957, she reached the round of 16. She made lifelong friends with this tennis player, Elizabeth Betty Pratt who was the number four seed at the time. She lost to her in the round of 16 in 1957. And later on, Pratt invited her, along with Althea Gibson and Maria Bueno, to play a tournament that Pratt owned in where else but Montego Bay, Jamaica. And she also played a tournament in San Juan, Puerto Rico. With that first trip to Wimbledon, she became the first Maori person, male or female, to play at Wimbledon. She became the first New Zealand woman to play at Wimbledon. And just put together this quiet but stunning career in New Zealand and Australia and playing Grand Slams. Throughout her career, which was a very short career, she won the New Zealand National Singles title six times, the doubles title seven times. I mentioned earlier that she played Margaret Court in Auckland in 1960, beating her for the title. She also won Auckland the previous year in 1959. She was appointed member of the Order of the British Empire which is the MBE in 1960. She says that my greatest achievement in tennis was to witness all my mentors. Whatever they saw in me came to fruition for me. She comes across as somebody who was incredibly humble and somebody who was just happy to be there. Not in a bad way. Not say that she didn't have ambition or drive, but she had different goals for herself. She was very much happy to be at home with her people and didn't really care for traveling the globe, chasing tennis tournaments. You have to keep in mind that this time too, this is pre-open era, and so there's not much money to be made. She already struggled to come up with these funds to go to Wimbledon the first time. Folks at the time were so impressed by Rory Morrison at that Wimbledon, making the round of 16. And they were asked, well, in the absence of having actual rankings right now, how would you place her in terms of women's tennis right now? And they said, well, you know, if she continues on the tour, plays some more tournaments, she's easily one of the top 10 players in the world. But of course, that didn't come to fruition because after spending three weeks in England for that first Wimbledon, she was so anxious to get home that she forewent all of that. (laughs) Right. And, you know, she played tournaments in England. She played the English hard courts. She played Wimbledon four times. She reached a round of 16 twice. She played in Australia, New Zealand, so she had a career, but it seemed like she was content living in New Zealand. This is where she felt at home, and she spent a lot of her life teaching tennis. She was content with that life as well because she had carved out this community where she felt comfortable within Maori tennis, which was separate from New Zealand tennis at the time. Mm -hmm. She was a local hero in that sense, but struggled to gain the same recognition outside of that community in New Zealand. So much so that when Fred Perry was invited to New Zealand Tennis's centenary, he showed up and said, where's Rhea Morrison? 
And the answer to that was she wasn't invited. Right. Not only was she not invited, she didn't even know it was taking place. Somewhere along the line, New Zealand tennis did not bridge that gap. It is only recently, very recently, that outside of the Maori tennis community in New Zealand, that she's getting the recognition that she's due countrywide. Right. This woman was born in 1936. She's over 80 years old. And I guess it's better late than never that she's finally, finally getting her due, due to a lot of work from people in her community. At the trophy presentation this year in Auckland, Rhea Morrison presented Serena Williams with a Maori cloak, which is known as the Karawai. It's made by Maori weavers. And from now on, the Rhea Morrison Karawai will be presented to all women's champions at the ASB Classic. And I learned that I liked this little tidbit, is that it was designed to fit Ruya Morrison, who is small, right? She's five foot something. She's five foot not much. <laughs> right. So the cloak, you know, it was placed on Serena Williams' shoulders, and it's short. But it was made as a tribute to Morrison because she is small. And at this tournament, she was finally feted as as this great legend of New Zealand tennis and finally given her due at what the age of 83 she said the humility it hit me right here to think that I would be worthy of anything like this happening for someone who just wanted to sit on the court and hit a ball not to win and not to lose but just to sit there and enjoy the game in bringing a bigger focus to Ruya Morrison's story one of our goals and I guess you can say it's been an ethos of the show while we're in quarantine in telling these stories is that we want folks to get their due while they're still here. For more people to know about them while you can still let them know about it. Right. Unfortunately, one of the common threads in in all of these stories is that being the first means that you're often overlooked later on. Althea Gibson, while we're, we're saying now that she wasn't the first, she was one of the first along with Aura Washington and they were both largely forgotten at the end of their lives. Rhea Morrison was the first. She disappeared into the annals of New Zealand tennis history for decades. Right. And to be the first in a lot of ways is because of injustice, right? It's because people like you were excluded purposely for many, many years. That's why you are the first. There's actually a pain and there's an injustice in breaking these barriers. With this last player profile, we're going to do a little bit of a cheat here. I know that we had said that we were presenting four players. We've done Aura Washington, Richard Russell, and Ruya Morrison. And officially, the person that we're going to be profiling here is Vijay Amritraj. But it's more going to be a spotlight on the Amritraj family. Because so many of the Amritraj men are involved or have been involved with tennis. And sometimes... To be frank, it's hard to to keep a clear focus on the family tree and know who is connected to who, where, and when. Vijay Amritraj is the most successful of the Amritraj men in terms of professional tennis, but he also played tennis along with his two other brothers, Anand and Ashok. And then we have Vijay's son, Prakash Amritraj, who was a tennis player and now a current TV presenter for Tennis Channel. And then there's Anand's son, Stephen Amritraj, who was a tennis player as well, who is now married to Alison Risk. And so Prakash and Stephen are cousins, 
And their fathers, Vijay and Anand, along with Ashok, played tennis in the 70s and 80s. They were born in Chennai, which was then known as Madras, in the early to mid-1950s. Vijay is the most accomplished tennis player of the brothers, who had a high ranking of number 16. He won 18 singles titles, 14 doubles titles, eight of them with his brother Anand. Four of his singles titles are actually in India, back when, can you imagine, there being like a South Asian swing, a subcontinent swing in ATP tennis? That doesn't really exist anymore, but he won titles in Mumbai, Kolkata, and New Delhi. Throughout his career, he won titles on all surfaces, carpet, grass, hardcourt, clay, indoor hardcourt. For his very first title, he beat Jimmy Connors in the final in Bretton Woods. He also had wins over Manuel Orantes, Stan Smith, and Henri Leconte in ATP finals. Vijay was the middle child. The eldest was Anand, then there was Vijay, and then Ashok. Up until 1973, really only four teams dominated in Davis Cup. It was the USA, it was Australia, it was France, and it was the Great Britain team. In 1973, India makes it to the final to play South Africa. So you're guaranteed a first-time champion in Davis Cup. India's road to that final, first in the Eastern Zone, they beat Australia, who was the defending champion. Vijay clinched that fifth rubber. In the semifinals, India beats the Soviet Union, Vijay winning two singles matches and one doubles match with Anand. And we reach the final. This is 1973. South Africa is an apartheid state. We're in the midst of the worldwide sporting boycott of South Africa. You have this incredible opportunity for either country to be the first winner outside of those four tennis superpowers to win the Davis Cup. And India voluntarily forfeits, refuses to play in South Africa because of its apartheid system. And South Africa wins the first Davis Cup in 1974 that was not attributed to one of those four tennis superpowers. And then again in 1987, India advances to the Davis Cup final. Vijay is now 34 years old. The Indian team beats Argentina, Israel, and Australia before eventually losing to Sweden 5-0 in the final. 1974 was an incredible year for the Amitraj brothers on the Grand Slam level. In singles, at the US Open, Vijay beats Bjorn Borg in the second round, eventually reaching the quarterfinals where he lost to Ken Rosewall. And then Anand beats Manuel Orantes in the second round on a bad ankle. And then Orantes goes on to win the U.S. Open the following year. And for much of their career, for most of their career, Vijay and Anand were the number one and number two ranked players in India. They were an incredible doubles team together, very different personalities. Anand was known as being more flamboyant. Vijay was this incredible statuesque athlete. And they all have gone on to incredible success in their post-tennis career. I encourage you to watch YouTube videos of Vijay playing tennis, especially on grass. There are quite a few of them available on YouTube, and it's beautiful tennis on display. You mentioned that each of the Amitraj brothers went on to success outside of tennis. Give us a rundown of what they've gotten up to post-tennis. Right. So... Vijay has done basically everything. He acted in a James Bond movie. (laughs) He had a cameo in Octopussy, which unbelievably is the real title of a real film. 
in the early 1980s. His son Prakash has also done acting and has said that he is a better actor than his father. Vijay was also a uh, United Nations messenger for peace. He co-founded the Britannia Tennis Academy in his hometown of Chennai, which his mother ended up running. Anand took the more traditional post-tennis route and captained the India Davis Cup team for years. Anand is the one you would probably know him by his flashy sunglasses. He has like a shock of white gray hair and wears those very thick sunglasses with the flat frame on top. And then arguably the most successful outside of tennis is the youngest son, Ashok Amritraj. He was the least successful tennis player among the brothers, but is now the chairman and CEO of Hyde Park Entertainment Group. Formerly, he was a CEO of National Geographic Films. Throughout his tennis career, he was able to network and meet a lot of movie stars and directors, play tennis at their house, and he was able to parlay that into a career in film afterward. Right. He left tennis at age 26, moves to Los Angeles, he eventually became a U.S. citizen, and... He and the unheard of star at that time, Jean-Claude Van Damme, teamed up for the movie Double Impact, and that's credited as launching both of their careers in the U.S. So Ashok becomes this huge, successful movie producer, founds Hyde Park Entertainment in 1999 with a focus on feature films. Hyde Park has an Asia division, which has this whole slate of film and TV targeted at South Asian audiences in both English and local languages. He's actually currently working on a series for AMC Studios to be directed by Werner Herzog um, called Fordlandia, which is based on this utopian city that Henry Ford tried to build in the Amazon, which, okay, is another thing I need to learn about. Ashok is also a UN Goodwill Ambassador with a focus on sustainable development and gender equality, and he has actually been a longtime advocate of gender equality and diversity throughout his career in Hollywood. So this is like a whole lot of stuff I did not know about the Amritraj family. And for a lot of folks, perhaps all you know is the fact that Prakash is a TV presenter, that he's friends with the Williams sisters. (laughs) Right. And for a lot of folks, that's kind of like, how did that happen? We don't have the answer for that. (laughs) And then also the fact that Last year, Alison Riss got married to Stephen Amritraj. And you're like, okay, these two dudes have the same last name. Are they brothers? Well, they're not. They're cousins. And they're part of this, really, dynasty of Indian tennis. What I love about this story, and what is very heartwarming, is that the three brothers credit their mom, Maggie Amritraj, for really helping to build their tennis career alongside their father, Robert, and being kind of their their moral, and their emotional support throughout their entire lives. She was also their financial support, because while they were getting their tennis career started, from a young age, she started a corrugated cardboard box company at their home. And then, once the Amritraj Tennis Academy was founded, she ran it herself. Right. And at the time of its founding, Vijay said he would only undertake this thing if his mother was going to manage it. And so she was really the face and the brains behind it for many years. Leander Pays and Samdev Devarman went through the academy. Leander Pays, who grew into one of the greatest doubles players who ever lived. And you know, this wasn't a super rich family, right? This wasn't a family that had access to all the greatest clubs in India. 
This was a modest middle-class family from Chennai who scraped and enterprised to get their kids that sort of exposure. So again, we don't want to presume that you don't know about the Amitraj family. This may have just been an exercise in curing our own ignorance. For a lot of folks who do work in tennis, you may have been aware of all of this, and this may not have been news to you. But I suspect that there are quite a few folks who who may find some of this edifying, hopefully. And that's really the goal for us of doing this kind of episode is to teach ourselves things that we want to know and we feel we should know and hopefully entertain you in the process. (laughs) You know, we've got players from three different continents throughout the 20th century, two men, two women, well, like seven men if you count the entire Amitraj family, but try to present a, a less North American centric view of the whole of tennis. As always, if you start from a place of accepting that you don't know everything, then you can open up so much more. There, I feel like there's often a temptation, especially a trap that folks like us can fall into where you have a podcast where folks listen to and you're expected almost to be the authority on certain things. And we've always kind of taken the approach that, well, we don't know everything. And we're also not afraid to tell you that we don't know everything. And some of the fun and the best parts of doing this is, like you said, for me, not on the same level as you have wanted to be in school your entire life. But some of the fun is actually doing the research and then having all these other aspects of tennis history being opened up to you. And not using not knowing something as a crutch, using it as an invitation to to learn more. On that note, thank you for listening. Thank you for the feedback on the Xena episode. We will continue to be doing episodes that are atypical for us. Perhaps this will become the new norm. Who knows what tennis will bring in the next year, really? Mm -hmm. The deadline or the goalpost for tennis resuming keeps being pushed back further and further. So we are here, you know, we are adjusting. And we hope that you are finding these episodes entertaining, that you're enjoying them, that you are learning new stuff like we are. And we look forward to doing more work and bringing more to you. Thanks for listening. You can find us on Instagram and Twitter at The Body Serve. I'm James uh, at Elliot JMR on Twitter. Two L's, two T's. I'm Jonathan. You can find me on Twitter at Tennis underscore John. Till next time. <laughs>